And uh, happy 4th of July almost. What a blessed thing we have to uh, be able to live in this great nation and uh, with all the heritage and all the opportunity. And uh, of course, we want to be in prayer. We want to uh, continue trusting the Lord with uh, various goings-on and circumstances in our culture, in uh, the culture of our nation and um, the influence we have around the world, the things we are exporting, etc. We certainly want to be in prayer, but we are a blessed people to uh, have the opportunities that we do here. And so we want to uh, thank God for that. If you would open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, 2 Corinthians 13, we are going to uh, be focusing today on one verse and looking at what Paul has to say to the church at Corinth and uh, seeing what we might have for us today, what he might want to do in our own hearts and in our own church from 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. This is God's Word. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you this morning to worship you. You alone are worthy of all of our lives, our time, our affections, our obedience, our worship and praise. And we pause in our week to open your word and see what you have for us. We thank you that you communicate truth to us in your word. That what we have in our hand here is not merely the thoughts of men reflecting on their religious experiences. This is the very word of God. And as we open it, we learn of you, about your son, and what he has done for us by your spirit as you communicate to us. This morning I pray that you would do a great work in our hearts, that we would rejoice that we get to be called your children. So bless us now, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. I occasionally have the opportunity to do premarital counseling, and that is a lot of fun. If you've done any premarital counseling, or if you remember your own, or perhaps you uh, uh, wish you could have had some, uh, there are a lot of very interesting thoughts. Some, uh, some topics of conversation are a little touchy or um, a little awkward sometimes, and, but there's lots of laughter and lots of fun and lots of hope. And, and one of the topics that I discuss with uh, those with whom I do premarital counseling has to do with expectations because uh, they're coming into their marriage and uh, they are looking at life together and they're, they're, they have a picture in their own mind of what marriage is going to be like and and the woman has a picture of what her husband is going to be like and what their marriage is going to be like. And, and she's built certain expectations upon those. And she probably doesn't even know that she really has this picture in her mind. And likewise, for the young man, he has expectations of what his marriage is going to be like, what his wife is going to be like. And he probably doesn't know that he has those. And, and so I like to dig into those a little bit just to see really what they are expecting. A lot of it they picked up from watching their mom and dad. A lot of it they picked up from, uh, from culture or uh, from other things. But it's fun to bring those things out, and not just fun. It is entertaining for uh, someone who's been married uh, a little bit longer than, than, uh, than most. Then I get to uh, see from my perspective and kind of um, laugh with them a little bit and, and, uh, 
and tease them and receive some teasing in return, but, but it is an important topic to draw out the expectations that we might have because usually our expectations are un, uh, unspoken. They're, we're not aware of what they might be. We just have them because of the family we grew up in or the context we grew up in. We have these expectations, but, but uh, if we don't spell them out, if we don't lay them out and put them on the table, then we run a real risk of those expectations not being met and us having not identified even what they really are. We kind of just feel this angst or something's not right and we don't really know why. And, and if we knew that, hey, I had this expectation and that expectation's not being met, uh, it would help them in their marriage. Or maybe they would realize, I have this expectations and that's just not realistic. And maybe I need to change my expectations. So it's, uh, it's a very interesting uh, uh, exercise. I think it's probably more interesting for me, but I hope it's enlightening for the couple as they're going uh, through their premarital counseling. Well, the reason I bring that up is because I want to ask the question, what do you most want from God? What are your expectations that you have of Him? And particularly, uh, this would be uh, an important topic for those who are just coming into the faith, or maybe they've just heard the gospel, or they've just become a Christian, and, and it would be important to ask, what are you expecting from God? What do you think you're going to get out of this? What, what exactly are your expectations? But, but as I said, we often have unwritten, unspoken, and unrecognized expectations. And so it's just as important for those of us who have walked with the Lord for a long time to ask, what do you want from God? What do you expect from God? Or maybe to put it another way, what blessings can you legitimately expect to receive from God in your relationship with Him? We've all got expectations. We've all got things that we're waiting on. We want God to do, and we're trusting that He's going to do. But the question before us today is, what blessings can we legitimately expect to receive from Him? Maybe, maybe it's happiness. Maybe that's something that you think uh, God is promising us, that He owes us, or perhaps that will be part of the package when we come into the faith, when we come to know Christ. Or maybe what we're expecting from God is, is help in life's problems that I've got difficulties in my life, and if I, if I reach out to God, if I, if I have God, if I, if, I, if I trust in Him, then I will have help in life's difficulties. Or maybe, maybe your expectation from God is that He will give you freedom from your sinful habits or sinful patterns. There are things in life, paths that you take, ways that you tend to act or, uh, or believe or uh, speak or whatnot, and you think that, that the Lord will help you with those things. That's your expectation. Maybe your expectation is that you'll have good, healthy relationships because you are a Christian and that that is part of what it means to be a Christian. Part of what you can expect to receive from God is that you will have good and healthy relationships. Or maybe it's peace of mind. Maybe you're, maybe you're racked with guilt, uh, with regrets, or maybe you're wrestling with uh, big things that are, that are too painful and too uh, memories that, are, that you don't want to bring up, and, and, you, and you, you think that, that, uh, that God ought to give you peace of mind, and that's what your expectation is from Him. Or maybe it's just a general sense of well-being or, or being loved, feeling loved, and that's that's what we hope to get from God. Well, many of those things we really do find in our relationship with God, that He does bless us in numerous ways, that the Christian has a capacity for happiness that the non-Christian does not, because we know the truth. We have the larger picture, that the non-Christian doesn't get help in life's problems. They might figure some things out. They might figure out uh, a, a trick or two or, or have some other ways of being strengthened, but certainly the Christian is helped in life's problems in, in a way that's far greater than the non-Christian. But, but are these things, are these expectations, are they really at the bottom what we can expect from God, what we ought to expect from God? And if, and if we don't receive this peace of mind, for example, God is not upholding His end of the deal, or there's something wrong in our relationship that God is not keeping uh, his, his end of the bargain. Or maybe if, uh, if I still struggle with sinful habits and sinful patterns that, that, uh, that, that, that 
I've got, God is not upholding his end of the deal. I thought I was supposed to get rid of this. Well, no, we don't, we're not guaranteed uh, these things, particularly on the time frame that we would like. But the question today is, what are the greatest blessings that we really can expect from God? That these ought to be our spoken and stated and written expectations. What can we expect from God as greatest blessings from Him that are ours because of our relationship with Him? Well, what we're looking at in this verse today gives us what those greatest blessings are, gives us what those clearest expectations ought to be. Now, this verse, of course, comes right at the end of 2 Corinthians, and, and it's the very last verse. It's the, it's the benediction. And, and if you know what's been going on in 2 Corinthians, you know that Paul has been writing to this church that he's had struggles with before. The church in Corinth had all manner of problems. If you read 1 Corinthians, uh, it, you, it'll blow your mind with the troubles that were going on in the church. Well, this is 2 Corinthians, and they've moved on a little bit from that, but they're facing new challenges. There had been people come into the church, these super apostles, uh, in Paul's absence who were sort of looking at Paul and others like him, Apollos and all of those, and saying, well, you know, those, those guys, they're, they're sort of like the junior varsity. They don't really have the full blessings of God. You can tell by looking at Paul and his companions that, that they don't have the full blessing of God because they still suffer, because they, uh, they've been beaten. You see the scars on Paul? That guy's been through some stuff. Obviously, he doesn't have the blessing of God that, that uh, they're poor. They don't travel in style. They're not fancy to look at. They're not fancy to listen to. And so these super apostles looking at the apostle Paul and others like him were, were looking down upon them and, and, and saying that actually uh, they don't have the full blessing of God. And so Paul, in writing... 2 Corinthians will often argue against that in a, in a, in a sort of casual way. He will, he, will, uh, he will throw in there things about himself, like in chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. He says, I don't want you to appear to be, I don't want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. So Paul is just pointing out that these guys have been saying about me that I'm nothing impressive. Yeah, I can write a big letter. And I can say all this strong stuff on paper, but, it, but in my presence, when I'm actually there, I don't exude the blessing of God. I don't exude the strength of God. There's nothing impressive about me. But Paul's going to respond to that in chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, and he'll say, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. So Paul would tweak them a little bit, and he would point out all the way through, even, even boasting, as he says in 11 and verse 30, if, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness, Paul says. These guys, these super apostles, boasted about all the wonderful and huge ways that God had blessed them. See, look, we travel in style. See, look, we've got money. See, look, we don't suffer. We're impressive. Paul says, well, I, I can boast too but I will boast in my weakness. I will boast in those things that demonstrate that I myself am weak. Because when I am weak, then I'm strong. Because his strength is sufficient for me. And so Paul is going to turn this on its head. He's going to take their accusations. He's going to take their arguments and they're saying, look, Paul is weak and doesn't experience the full blessing of God because of all of these deficiencies. And Paul's going to say, yes, I have those deficiencies and more. And God works through them by his great blessing. So the question before us today as we look at this is, what are those greater blessings? Now, of course, it would be a blessing, one would think, to be able to travel in style. It would be a blessing, one would think, not to suffer. It would be a blessing to be impressive in speech, impressive in appearance, to be formidable. It would be a blessing, one would think, but Paul says, well, I know true blessing. I know a greater blessing. 
And I'll trade those blessings. I'll get rid of those for this blessing that he's going to talk about in this verse, namely the nearness and help of the triune God. And if I get to be unimpressive, okay. If I get to be beaten, okay. If I travel through life poor and suffering and despised and persecuted, but I have the nearness and the help of my triune God, okay. I will take that deal. That is true blessing. And that's the blessing that he prays for, for this church in Corinth, and it's the blessing that I pray for us today as well. Very simple verse talking about the Trinity. A very simple verse laying out for us the, the persons of the Trinity. Of course, we have, we have one God. He is one in being, but eternally existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And I know the words and the categories to, to teach that and to say those things, but can I comprehend how it all works? Of course not. I am finite and fallen, and God is infinite and holy. And so, of course, I can't stuff God into my brain. That shouldn't surprise any of us. But Paul is going to spell out here some, some things about our triune God that are a blessing for us. First of all, he talks about the grace of the Son. And when we talk about the Trinity, we usually will talk about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And Paul normally does as well. But here, he flips it around and he starts off in this benediction by, 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 by praying that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ would be with you all. So he talks about the grace of the Son. I don't know how you think about the Son. I don't know how you think about the Trinity or if you even really do think about the Trinity. I encourage you to do so. I encourage you to think about the times in Scripture when uh, the Holy Spirit will inspire an author to talk about the Father and what the Father has done, what the Father does, and the Father's role, and the Father's relationship to the Son, the Father's relationship to the Spirit, the Father's relationship to us. I encourage you to look through Scripture and see the Son and His relationship to the Father and His relationship to the Spirit and His relationship to us, and likewise with the Holy Spirit. I encourage you. But how can we summarize? Where can we find a summary of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the grace of the Son? Well, it's right here in 2 Corinthians. Right here in 2 Corinthians. Turn back to chapter 8 and verse 9, where he talks about the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ again. Chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, and he's going to spell out what it is. So take note, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See what happens there? You see where, wherein resides the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is that He who was rich, God the Son Himself, possessing all things, through whom all things were created, having everything, position, power, at the right hand of the Father, he was rich. He had everything. Can't even, can't even imagine. And yet he, the rich one, took on poverty. Meaning, took on flesh to be born as one of us. That he would, that he would move from that, not, not holding on to that, not not demanding to, to remain in that position of, of wealth and richness, but instead taking on human flesh, becoming one of us, born into this world where there is sin, where there is suffering 
And he himself experienced that sin being done to him. He himself, himself experienced suffering in this world. He, who was rich, became poor. Why did he do that? Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. For your sake. He did so with a purpose. He did so with, with the purpose of redeeming sinners. That he who was rich would become poor for your sake to benefit you. He wasn't, he wasn't adding to himself in any way. He wasn't beefing up his resume. God, God doesn't need to redeem sinners in order to be glorious. He's glorious. He's fully God and nothing can be added to him. But for your sake, the son being rich, became poor, took on human flesh. And here's the gospel. Lived as one of us. Amongst us, but obedient to God. Obedient to God's law. Obeying God fully and always. Being righteous. Behaving in a righteous way. Speaking and thinking and acting in a righteous way always. So he who was rich became poor. And in his poverty, living as a, as a human, he was obedient to God. And of course, he went to the cross and, 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 and paid the penalty for, for sin, for poor sinners like us. He took that upon himself, standing in the place of sinners, bearing in his own body on the tree our sin, paying the penalty for it, dying the death that we deserve. And then God raised him, indicating the payment had been acceptable, that God had received that payment. And, and now the righteousness that Christ earned of his life of obedience is his to give away. And the penalty that he paid for sin means he can give forgiveness because that sin has been paid for. And so for all who will trust in Christ, they find that there's been a great exchange of their sin having been placed on Christ and punished and Christ's righteousness being credited to their account so that they get to stand before God, not as poor as they had been, but because he who was rich became poor for their sake, they become rich. This is the essence of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Like Jacob's son Judah in the book of Genesis, in chapter 44, that, that when his brother Benjamin was, was going to be kept as a slave, was going to be kept down in Egypt, Judah was willing to go into slavery. To take on, he the free one was willing to take on slavery, was willing to become the captive so that Benjamin would be set free. This is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Elsewhere in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul reminds us for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So why, why would Paul pray, if you look back at 2 Corinthians 13, 14, and he prays, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Because this, this grace is the only way we can stand. This grace is the only way we can have life. This grace is the only way that we can have peace with God by what Christ did for us in that exchange, by what Christ did for us in being made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul prays for this Corinthian church that you, you, I'm not really concerned that you know all the blessings that these super apostles claim to have. I'm concerned that you have Christ and His grace. But he doesn't stop there. Having spoken of 
the grace of the Son, he moves on to the love of the Father. He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God be with you all. In the context, having spoken about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son, and he's going to speak about, at the end of the verse, the Holy Spirit, the reference here to God is a reference to the Father. And that is often the case in Paul's writings, often the case in the New Testament. But what's fascinating here is what he wants us to know about the Father. It's not just the glory of the Father. It's not just the magnitude of the Father or the strength or the, or the wisdom or, or the beauty even of the Father. What he wants them to know, what he wants them to be blessed with is the love of the Father. Now, on one hand, that may strike you as a little bit odd. There is a there is a sense that some people have in reading the Old Testament that God in the Old Testament is mad and angry and kind of throwing stuff around and destroying people. God is, God is angry and He's destructive. But in the New Testament, good news is that Jesus comes along and Jesus is kind of peaceful. And He's kind of, He's, he's speaking words of grace and, and, and peace. And Jesus is really the epitome of love. It's, that's the common misunderstanding. Now, that is a misunderstanding because if you read Jesus' words, he talked a lot about hell. He talked a lot about judgment. And he says of himself, you know, you know who it is is going to judge the world, Jesus says? I am, says Jesus. So judgment's coming. The judgment is not removed in Jesus. Likewise, when you look at the Old Testament, you look at God's grace and his patience, working with his people, all the things that he tells them, that he teaches them, and how many centuries he is patient with His people. You see the grace of God all over in the Old Testament as well as the New. You see the righteousness of God in the New Testament all over, just like you do in the Old. But here, what He wants to point out to us is the love of the Father. That the Father wasn't this angry deity that now Jesus comes along and Jesus kind of likes us. And so, uh, since He loves us, he, he, He kind of convinces His Father to begrudgingly sort of say, okay, well, I guess I'll be patient with him, and I guess I'll give him a little bit of time. I guess I can be kind to him, as if Jesus has to win over his Father. Now, listen to John 3.16. It was referenced earlier. God so loved the world. Who loved the world? God. What was the result? That he gave his only Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It is God who sent His Son for the purpose of redemption. God in His love and His expression of love, the way He expressed it, is by sending His Son to be the Redeemer. The Father's love is all over the pages of Scripture. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? God, the Father, gave up His Son for us. Motivated out of His own love for us. God being for us. Sent His Son. The Father loves us. The the, the origin, the very origin of redemption is the Father's love for us. To start the whole process to get the whole thing going. So much so that Jesus in His high priestly prayer would would turn to His Father and say, Father, I have done Your will. I came here and have done what You sent me to do. This was Your idea. This was Your task. This was the mission You gave me, and I've done it. And I'm about to lay down my life. Romans 8, 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Father's love for us is the, is, is the ultimate cause of our redemption. That He would send His Son is His expression of love, how the Father loves us. And Paul wants this church in Corinth to have a clear understanding, a clear expectation about God's love. 
Now, that needs some nuance because you and I can interpret God's love in a particular way, and, and probably very often it comes out in our own minds a little bit like the super apostles who had disturbed the church in Corinth interpreted it. I should have a cushy life. I should have a great ride. I should look good. I should smell good, and I should sound good, and everybody should think I'm good. And that would be the sign of God's love. But no, it's connected with what Jesus has just done. The love of the Father is most clearly expressed for us in the redemption accomplished for us by the Son, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God. So Paul wants this church at Corinth to know what is true blessing. And I I want us, and I want to know what is true blessing so that I'm not distracted, so that I'm not dismayed, so that I'm not tempted to go off after the expectations of the super apostles, which are the expectations of our culture, of what it means to be blessed by God. It means these comfortable and wonderful things. It means to have peace with God, rooted in the love of God, accomplished for us by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the essence. That is the core of the blessing of God. And that we know, regardless of our circumstance, if we are in Christ. And he finishes with the fellowship of the Spirit. His great benediction is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What does the fellowship or the communion, some versions have, of the Holy Spirit mean? Well, there is a lot wrapped up in that. There's a lot in there about comfort. There is a lot in there about peace with God expressed to us. But I think, I think it will help us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. Go all the way back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12. And what Paul says there, Now we have received... Not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Why have we received the Spirit? Or what is accomplished from us having received the Spirit? That we might understand the things freely given us by God. The giving of the Holy Spirit, the communion of the Holy Spirit, us having the Holy Spirit and fellowship with Him is the means by which the truths about God are communicated to us. And not just in a way that we understand in our brain. It's not about learning a thing. It's not about facts. It's not about It's not about putting together a puzzle. It's not about accumulating knowledge or any of that. It's that we would understand it, that we would know those things. They are applied by God to us. They come to roost in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is given to us by God not only to communicate salvation to us as we are born of the Spirit. These things are applied to us by the Spirit. Certainly, salvation itself is communicated to us by the Spirit, but also to open our eyes to see the riches of what God has given us in this salvation. As we grow and we learn and we ponder the gospel and what it is we have in Christ, we we understand more and more and we are bolstered up more and more by what is true of, of what it means to be in Christ, to have God as our Father. To have this salvation because of what Christ has done and the peace that comes with that, the hope that comes with that, the joy that comes with that, the help that comes with that, the life that comes with that. We realize that more and more. And how is that? How does that information come to us? It is information. It's not only information. 
It's, it's life-giving, but how does it come to us? It's communicated to us by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God working in the heart of God's people that they would understand more and more the riches of what is theirs in Christ. What it means to be reconciled to God. The day I was saved, I thought it was wonderful. And I was right. That, that I, who had been at enmity with God, who had no hope in the world, no peace, no life, no direction, no uh, being under God's judgment, I, who was in that situation, now was a person who, who could call God Father, who had opportunity to pray to God, had desire given by God to pray. My sins were forgiven. I had eternal life promised me. What a, what a wonderful day. What a blessed day that was. And I was right. And that day, and my thoughts of the greatness of this salvation that I have in Christ on that day pale in comparison as I grow and understand more and more what it is I have in Christ. As I understand better my own sin that I have been freed from. As I understand better what it means to be God's child. As I understand better and better what He is and what I have in Him. As the, the Spirit of God communicates that to me, showing it to the eyes of my heart, my joy abounds. My hope increases. And I understand the true and the real and the deep and the lasting blessing that is mine by being rightly related to my triune God. And so the super apostles can, can keep their fanciness and they can have their wealth and they can have their polish and they can have their easy life. This is the blessing of God that you, poor sinner, get to have God Almighty as your Father because of His great love for you by means of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who gave Himself for you, communicated to you, made applicable to you, brought home for you by the Spirit of God. Is there a greater blessing? Is there something else that would be of greater value than this blessing right here? There is nothing greater than this blessing. We who are in Christ know the Father's love for us. He is the one who sent the Son to redeem us. Could it be possible to overestimate the value of the Father's love? No. Not even possible. As Paul would say, if God is for us, who could be against us? We who are in Christ have a profound appreciation for the Son's grace in becoming sin for us that we might become the righteousness of of God. And as we grow in Christ, we realize these realities more and more. We realize that that is where the blessing lies, not in a fat bank account, but in Christ. Christians can be assured that they have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit as He has applied to us the benefits of salvation and continually opens our eyes to the riches that are ours by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Spirit of God continually works. What a blessing. What a blessing. It, it would be blessing enough if God just gave us this book full of truth, full of, full of life, just gave this book to us and left us to discover the things that are there. That would be blessing. But the Spirit of God takes the Word of God and he opens our eyes to the reality of the truth of God and his saving work in Christ. And he brings that to home for us. What a blessing. Could there be a greater blessing than to have our triune God as our God and to have peace with him, to be called by his name? And one of the ways that the Spirit does that 
is through our celebration of the Lord's Supper. So if I could have the men come forward who will be serving. All of this discussion today, all of these blessings today, belong to anyone and everyone in Christ. And so as we celebrate these elements, as we look at the bread, which represents the body of Christ, as we look at the cup, which represents the blood of Christ shed for us, we Christians recognize exactly what it is we are looking at, recognize that this represents the sacrifice that Christ himself made for us, bringing us into communion with God. And so we call it communion. We call it the Lord's Supper. As we partake of this, this is something that Christians do that draws us back to the reality of what Christ has done. And so if you are not in Christ, if you don't know Him, if you haven't placed your faith in Him, if, if the things that I've said today don't make sense, come and ask me. It may be just I said them poorly. And it may be that you don't know the Lord, and you need to. And you are still that poor sinner who needs to understand that you're a poor sinner and look to Christ who was rich and became poor for your sake so that you, though poor, might become rich in Christ. And so if you are not a Christian, let this pass. This is for Christians to do. And come ask me, please, afterwards. First, we come to the bread. Let's take up the bread, please. Again, the Apostle Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 instructs us about the Lord's Supper. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to pass around the bread. And so, if you are in Christ, take a piece of that and hold on to it. We will partake later on. But as it's going around, spend time in quiet reflection, contemplating your own sin. Not, not, not the sin of long ago, but the sin that, that we still fight with now. Contemplate it and recognize that you still have sin to deal with and that you will confess it to God in that time confessing that you need Jesus' forgiveness. And you will find when you make that confession, forgiveness in Christ. And so take this time. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the bread, representing the body of Christ broken for us, we recognize, I recognize sin that sin deserves to be punished and that you have punished that sin for every Christian in Christ himself, that he himself bore our sins, became sin for us, stood in our place, and his body was broken, his life was given, that he bore your wrath that, that I deserved, and he did so for me. Father, I pray that each of us would call to mind the, our own sin, but that we wouldn't stay there, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't wallow around in it, but that we would confess it to you because we hate it too. That we would seek forgiveness in Christ and that as we do, we, we find it. We have peace with you, not because we're pretty good at not sinning, but because of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.
Jesus said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Next, we take up the cup. Paul continues, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to pass the cup. And as we're doing that, spend some time in quiet reflection and rejoicing in the completed new covenant on our behalf, the new life, the new hope, the new peace with God that we get to have because of what Christ has done as represented in the cup. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Jesus' blood of the new covenant, that we who are unrighteous get to have life and righteousness because of His grace, that we get to have You as our Father, that we get to have Your Spirit within us, we get to have a new heart. all made possible and accomplished by Jesus shedding his blood for us. And so we rejoice in that truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christian, isn't it wonderful to have forgiveness of sins and life in Christ because of what he's done for us? Amen. Gentlemen, you can have a seat, please. We're going to uh, close with a hymn. And, uh, and then after that's over, I would encourage you that today is the day uh, where we take a benevolence offering uh, to help out those who are in financial need. And um, so I would encourage you uh, for that. You can do that in the box at the back or in the plate that is in the foyer. And uh, afterwards, after we're done singing, I'll be down front. If you have questions or comments for me, there will also be a family that wants to pray with you. Until then, God bless you all, and let's sing together. And uh, keep this in mind, not just now, but through the week, okay? Let's stand. Ready? Behold the Lamb who bears our sins away, slain for us. And we remember the promise made to all make
great day. You're dismissed.